The two issues in the presidential race where West Virginia stands to either lose or gain ground and Democratic incumbents fight to keep their statewide offices. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm your host, Ashton Mara. Energy and health care. They're the two issues in the presidential race that could have the greatest impact on West Virginians. We look at where the two candidates stand. We also delve into the races for statewide office this week, taking a look at the campaigns for treasurer and secretary of state, two races where Democratic incumbents are fighting to maintain their seats. And a lawsuit alleges a Cabell County clerk is violating the rights of her constituents. Those stories coming up on Viewpoint. This week, Democratic candidate for president Hillary Clinton and Republican candidate Donald Trump took the stage for their final televised debate before November's general election. Wednesday night's meeting had the candidates sparring over a vacant seat on the U.S. Supreme Court, late-term abortions, and how to defeat ISIS. This year, the race's outcome will have substantial implications for big policy questions, questions that have a particular impact on West Virginia. That's especially true when it comes to the question of energy. How do Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump differ when it comes to energy and environment? The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports the two leading candidates present clear differences in this area. Remember this from the first presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Donald thinks that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. I think it's real. I, I did I not. Science I not. is real. I do not say that. And I think it's I do important not say that. that we... Actually, he did say that in a now infamous tweet from 2012 and then again during the Republican primaries, though he later said he was only kidding. This is actually an important point, energy experts say, because what the candidates think about climate change dominates what each would do as president on energy issues. Jim Sweeney is an engineering professor at Stanford. Hillary Clinton recognizes what the entire scientific community recognizes. Global climate change is real. It's caused by human sources. It creates problems, and we need to do something about global climate change. Sweeney says that's a stark contrast to what Donald Trump and his campaign have said about climate. After the whole climate is a hoax issue came up during the debate, the campaign attempted to clarify his views. His surrogates have said that Trump believes global climate change is real, but it's only caused by nature and human actions have no impact on it. That's basically inconsistent with the science. And so it follows that Trump's energy plan is fossil fuel heavy with a steady diet of drilling, mining, and fewer regulations. Here he is at a natural gas conference in Pittsburgh in September. Producing more American energy is a central part of my plan to making America wealthy again, especially for the poorest Americans. Trump has pledged to bring back the coal industry by cutting regulations. That's a long shot because regulations weren't the main reason coal production is at a 30-year low in the U.S. That culprit is cheap natural gas from fracking. Sweeney says Trump can't help both coal and gas also promised to help the natural gas industry, and, and so he, 
I don't see how he could do both simultaneously. A Trump energy advisor, North Dakota Congressman Kevin Kramer, told State Impact Oklahoma the two candidates just have different views on the role of government in determining how Americans get their energy. Are we going to unleash the the innovation of the private sector by working with by working with the energy industry and stakeholders on an environmental policy that is realistic, that is actually helpful, that doesn't kill the innovator? Trump has said he would back the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which 195 countries agreed to last year in order to avoid runaway climate change. But that could be difficult for Trump to do, experts say. This month, enough countries ratified the deal to put it into force. That means that it'll take at least four years for any U.S. president to unwind our obligation under international law under the Paris Agreement. Varun Sivaram is with the Council on Foreign Relations and has advised the Clinton campaign on climate and energy policy. Sivaram says Trump could still reverse some of the policies the U.S. could use to meet its climate obligations, like the Obama administration's clean power plan to reduce carbon emissions from the power sector. Clinton, on the other hand, wouldn't do that. Here she is at a rally near Seattle in March. I will protect, defend, and build on that work, but we've got to go further. I've set some big goals. I want to see us deploy a half a billion more solar panels by the end of my first term. That's part of her plan to ramp up solar capacity by 700 percent in just four years. That's an unbelievably high target. Again, Varun Sivaram. It's an ambitious one, and it's, you know, I, I think we can achieve it. But it, it's not easy. It's not going to happen on autopilot. She will actually have to do things. Uh, in order to achieve that target. To do all this, Clinton proposes modernizing the country's electricity grid, putting renewable energy projects on public lands, and investing heavily in renewables research and development. If she can pull off all those things with a Congress that's likely to be resistant to her ideas, maybe, just maybe, she can make her campaign promise a reality. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. The Allegheny Front is produced in Pittsburgh and reports on the environment. More at AlleghenyFront.org. It's not just energy policies, though, that the presidential candidates differ on. They also have opposite opinions on President Obama's Affordable Care Act. The 2011 law required all Americans to have health insurance and expanded access to Medicaid, federal health care coverage for low-income Americans. Both candidates say the program has its problems, but they would handle those problems in totally different ways. Joining me to discuss their stances is Carol Lofton, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Appalachia Health News coordinator. Kara, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the candidates' opinions about the Affordable Care Act just kind of in total. Where does each person stand? So as president, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump would take the nation down distinctly different paths on health care. Basically, Clinton would maintain but make changes to the ACA, and Trump would totally repeal it. Trump views the ACA as an economic disaster that has resulted in, quote, websites that don't work, greater rationing of care, higher premiums, less competition, and fewer choices. He also says that health insurance should be sold across state lines because competition will lower prices. Clinton recognizes some of the common complaints about the ACA, namely that insurance is still too expensive and that insurers are abandoning the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, but says her reforms, including a public insurance option, will help fix those issues. But 
The most concrete result is that under Clinton, about 9.6 million people would gain insurance coverage, while under Trump, approximately 20 million people would lose it by 2018. So that's a big difference. Now, when we talk about the consequences of each of these scenarios, Clinton's fixes and Donald Trump's repeal, what would that mean for the cost of health care? So Clinton proposes a cost-sharing tax credit to offset the cost of -of out-of-pocket spending that exceeds 5% of income. She also proposes a reduction in the maximum premiums a person must pay. Premiums are the monthly payment people make for their insurance. Clinton's reductions, however, are aimed at low-income or middle-class people. Trump proposes implementing a block grant system for programs like CHIP and Medicaid that are jointly funded by the state and federal government. This plan would allow states to receive lump sums of federal funding for social programs. The recipient states would then individually decide how to best allocate the funds. Advocates of this plan say that increased flexibility in Medicaid spending would allow states to more effectively spend the money and provide a higher quality of care. But opponents have argued that without federal oversight, social programs like Medicaid would become an easy target for cuts and quickly lose funding. So we've heard a lot in the national media about the increasing cost of prescription drugs. How do both candidates plan to fix that issue? Well, both candidates have said that they support Medicare negotiating directly with prescription drug companies to get lower cost, something that doesn't currently happen. Both candidates have also proposed allowing imported prescription drugs to enter the U.S. Clinton says she would further lower costs by getting more generic drugs on the market. Trump becomes a little more vague on drug prices here, while Clinton advocates for capping monthly drug costs and ensuring drug companies invest in research and innovation rather Rather than marketing. It's worth noting more generally, though, that both candidates' health care plans would increase the federal deficit. Clinton's because more people insured cost more money. Trump because the loss of savings from the ACA's Medicare reforms and revenues from fees and taxes would be greater than the savings from the elimination of insurance subsidies and the Medicaid expansion. So there are millions of Americans, you know, tens of thousands of them right here in West Virginia who now have health insurance because the ACA also allowed more people to sign up for Medicaid. So first, explain who those people are and then talk to us about the implications for them. So Medicaid expansion benefits families up to 138% of the federal poverty line, which in 2016 is an income of just over $16,000 for an individual or just over $33,000 for a family of four. 32 states, including West Virginia, have expanded Medicaid, although states did have the option not to. Clinton says she will address the health care coverage discrepancy between expansion and non-expansion states. For instance, Virginia did not expand Medicaid and now has a higher rate of uninsured residents, but says she will work with Republican governors to meet this goal. Since Trump wants to repeal the ACA, millions would lose insurance, including those who have gained coverage through expansion here in West Virginia. Kara Lofton is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Appalachia Health News Coordinator. Kara, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you. After a short break, we'll dive into two statewide races pitting Democratic incumbents against Republican newcomers. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
While the races for president and for governor seem to be getting all of the attention this election cycle, all five of West Virginia's constitutional offices are also on the ballot. Over the next few weeks, we'll take a look at all of those races. Last week, you heard from Republican candidate for auditor J.B. McCuskey, and next week, we'll be joined by the Democrat in that race, Marianne Clater. Today, we take a look at the race for treasurer, where Democrat John Perdue is up for re-election this year. The longtime incumbent has held the office for 20 years. He's running against political newcomer Republican Ann Erling, who brings 30 years of community banking to the table. Liz McCormick brings us this look at the campaigns for the office. Ann Erling is new to the world of politics, but not new to money and numbers. Erling is the senior vice president of Summit Community Bank, headquartered in Moorfield. But she and her family live in Charleston, where she's currently a commercial lender for the bank. As a banker, one thing that I have learned is it's important to have a fresh set of eyes. Look at the money and look at the way things are being done. And sometimes things aren't changed that need to be changed just to be more modern and more efficient. Erling says it's her fresh set of eyes and her experience in banking that make her qualified for the job as state treasurer. Incumbent John Perdue, who's held office since 1996, argues the system is already in a good place because he's brought transparency and hired people who do the job well. I think the proof of what I've done with the treasurer's office of bringing the professionals in there, the accountants, the CPAs, to manage the taxpayers' money and make sure that we do not lose any money, I think uh, we have set the examples that is very good. And we're always looking at other opportunities to improve upon that. Erling has criticized Purdue on the campaign trail, though, for a lack of transparency in his office. She points to a website run by the state of Ohio that allows citizens to explore the spending of individual state agencies. Erling says that kind of access would keep the office accountable. If you want to see where your taxpayers' dollars are going, where the sales tax is actually going to pay for paving of the roads, all of that is going towards that. You can, you can drill it down to the point that you can actually see the check that is cut. But Purdue says the state already has the exact same website. It's called transparencywv.com. We have an icon on the website where you can click on the transparency and you can go to any agency in state government and go and track any money that's being spent in state government. And we do that by working together with the governor office and the auditor's office because we're all together on transparency. The next treasurer of West Virginia will inevitably have to deal with the state's lack of revenues. Over the past four years, the office's budget has been cut by 32 percent. Purdue says continued cuts likely mean the next treasurer will have to lay off employees or cut services. If we continue to cut and you continue to lay off professionals, you got to decide where you're going to cut, which accountant are you going to take out of the treasurer's office, which CPA are you going to take out of the treasurer's office. I, don't wanna, I hope we don't get to that point that we make that decision. Erling says the treasurer's office should consider cutting employees, though. She would start with the public relations team, which she says Purdue puts too much time and money into. I personally uh, don't think it's the best use of resources for the state treasurer himself uh, and his public relations team to hand deliver checks to people for their unclaimed property. Not only is there a big public relations team while our state's in a budget crisis, basically. He's got eight top people there in his office now. 
Erling says there are too many high-level employees in the office taking home large salaries. But Purdue says those professionals make up an effective team and says you need the best people running state government. I'm not going to lose the best that I have in the, in the treasurer's office because I, I deal with that constantly uh, all the time. And if you don't pay on a competitive scale, you're going to lose that person to the private sector. I pay well because I believe that having the integrity and honesty in that office and having the checks and balances in place and having the best people is good government and the best government we can have to pay for the future of this state. One thing both candidates do agree on, though, is the importance of the educational programs offered through the treasurer's office. Purdue says he's proud of services they provide, like Smart 529, which helps families save for college. It allows parents and grandparents to save for their children's education, get a dollar-for-dollar tax deduction under state income tax by investing in that. And I think that's very important for the future of this state and economic development because we are getting kids to realize and start dreaming about what they want to be at a very young age and, and parents realizing they got to set that money aside. While Erling agrees that the college savings program is important, she says she would expand educational outreach efforts by creating more programs that target young people. I have a concern about the education of our of our young folks and and teaching them how to do a budget and how to balance their checkbook and how not to have tons of student loan debt and i think it's important that we do some basic education of just basic financial principles for all of our children really starting in grade school in the race, though, Erling casts herself as the candidate of change. You know, we've been doing things the same way for 83 years. It's time for a change. And we can't keep voting the same people in who are part of this political machine that keep doing the same things over and over and expect a different result. It's, um, it's time to try something different and see what happens. Purdue says he's made plenty of changes during his time in office, pulling together a team of professionals that work efficiently and effectively under his leadership. I think it should vote for me because they know I return the integrity and honesty and transparency to the treasurer's office. I'm a proven leader with the college savings program, unclaimed property, and making sure that for the first time in the history of this state, we're triple rated in the, in the finances of the bank of state government. I'm very proud of that. I'm going to continue to work for them and protect their money, the taxpayers' money, the bank of state government. Early voting begins in West Virginia on October 26th. Election day is November 8th. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Liz McCormick in Shepherdstown. Sticking to the statewide races, we move on now to West Virginia's chief elections officer, the Secretary of State. It's another race where a Democratic incumbent is fighting to keep her post. Clark Davis has more. The race for Secretary of State is more crowded this election cycle than in years past. There are three candidates running for the office, Libertarian John Buckley, Republican Mac Warner, and Democratic incumbent Natalie Tennant. The Secretary of State's office has a variety of responsibilities and it's perhaps known best for its overseeing elections. But registering and licensing businesses also falls under the office's duties. 
Tennant, who is seeking her third term in the office, says she's made that process easier for small business owners and more cost-effective by putting more resources online. For eight years, I have delivered on the promise of innovation for our businesses that saved them time and money so they could concentrate on creating jobs, and in doing so, giving money back to taxpayers, to back to general revenue. Tenant's Republican challenger Mac Warner agrees. While that might not be an obvious function of the office, the Secretary of State can help mold the state's business environment to foster job creation. Every government official, it should be their top priority to be looking as to how to create jobs and how to improve jobs. And so as Secretary of State, the first place people deal with the state when they register a business is with the Secretary of State's office. So we can make that as easy as possible. We can simplify things so you're not coming to the Secretary of State's office for one piece of paper going to the tax department for something else, basically the one-stop shop. I want to be a part of that process. Warner is a sixth-generation West Virginian, born and raised in the Canal Valley, who attended West Point. He's worked as a JAG, a military attorney, and has experience helping other countries establish their governments. Experience, he says, will help him in the Secretary of State's office. I've seen things from a number of different sides. I've seen these problems across the globe, literally across the globe, and I intend to bring those experiences that I've learned, how you fix these things. I've I've worked in the budgeting process, the procurement process, the project management, the proposal writing, all those things that you need to be working to fix government. Tenet touts some major accomplishments during her time as Secretary of State. One is the improvement of the state's overall election process. In August, the Pew Charitable Trust released their latest election performance index that showed West Virginia moving from 45th to 26th in the rankings of how well elections are conducted. Tenet points to one major project her office undertook to help improve that ranking, the implementation of online voter registration. We were able to implement that a year ago, which then put a foundation for really the next um, modernization movement of elections across the country. You know, OVR, online voter registration as we call it, is kind of, I don't want to say old, but the next step is automatic voter registration, of which the, the state legislature passed it, and we are um, third in the country to pass that legislation. The 2016 bill requires the Secretary of State's office to work with the Division of Motor Vehicles to automatically enroll voters in the state as they get a license or other ID. But it's programs like online voter registration that Republican Warner doubts. He says the office needs to pay more attention to shoring up the voting process and eliminating fraud by cleaning up the voter rolls. And that's where the the process that I think needs to be looked at here in West Virginia, I don't know that they've been paying proper attention to issues such as cleaning up the voter rolls. And, and it's, uh, an article was written a year or so ago that said there were three counties where there were more people registered to vote than there were eligible voters, uh, which means that we have people on the rolls who are dead, who are, have moved, felons, or, or other people that are not supposed to be on those rolls. According to the Secretary of State's office, since Tenet took office in 2009, the state has received 415 complaints about potential voter fraud. Of those 415 complaints, 29 were deemed probable, meaning an investigation deemed something fraudulent did occur. Those 29 cases included voting in the name of another person, someone voting who was not registered, writing in a county where that person doesn't actually live, or even offering someone money for their vote. In a time when West Virginians seem to be leaning toward electing Republicans to both state and federal offices, Tennant asked voters to recognize the good she's done for West Virginia, 
and to look past her national party affiliation. Look at Natalie. Look at what she's done over the last eight years and separate yourself and your feelings of how you feel about the presidential race. Warner says more should have been accomplished during Tenet's eight years in office, but says that wasn't possible because she was too busy running for other elected offices. Tenet unsuccessfully ran for governor during a special election in 2011 and then for U.S. Senate in 2014. It's like she's not satisfied with the job that she's been elected to. She's looking for the next opportunity. That's why I say a political opportunist. And again, when you're out there spreading your name at every opportunity, it's simply it's like the campaign never stops. It's just a constant campaigning. I, I don't see the jobs that way. Once I get elected, I intend to be the Secretary of State of West Virginia and pay attention to that job. Tennant argues she chose to run for other offices because she wanted to make a difference for her state. But she has still made major improvements in her office. What is wrong with offering your services in another area where West Virginians need that also? And I just ask people, you know, take a look at my record and take a look at my uh, both of my opponents' um, record and don't let... Um, a narrative of they've got to knock me down to make themselves look better. My opponents have run for three offices before. You know, West Virginians can spot a hypocrite a mile away. So if it's good enough for them, why isn't it good enough for anybody else? Warner, who comes from a family that's active in Republican politics in the state, ran for Congress in West Virginia's 1st District in 2010, losing to Republican David McKinley. Libertarian candidate John Buckley most recently ran against Tenet in 2014 for Senate. Buckley from Hardy County served as a Republican member of the Virginia House of Representatives and spent years working in the federal court system as an administrator. He is the only openly gay candidate for an office on West Virginia's Board of Public Works. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Clark Davis. From the state's chief elections officer to a voter registration issue sparking legal action from the American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia. The ACLU has once again filed a lawsuit against Cabell County Clerk Karen Cole, alleging that her refusal to allow voters to register online violates the 14th Amendment. Anne Lee has the story. Allison Mullins is a freshman at Marshall University, but she isn't originally from Huntington. When she decided to change her voter registration to Cabell County, she went online to fill out the form. But shortly after, she received a letter in the mail from the county clerk's office asking her to mail in a paper registration form instead. Mullins says the lack of an online registration option is not only inconvenient, it's also misleading to those who registered online to vote in Cabell County. Because a lot of people can't get out of their houses. So they think they have it accomplished, but then when they go to vote, they can't vote. The American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia, the ACLU, filed a lawsuit against Cabell County Clerk Karen Cole on behalf of Mullins this week. This isn't the first time that Cole has come under fire for her no online registration policy. Before the primary in May, Cole told West Virginia Public Broadcasting that online registration is more prone to voter fraud than paper registration is. The issue that we have is when we receive the information over the Secretary of State's online voter registration program is that it doesn't provide us with all the information that the law requires that we have to have in order to register a voter. Cole's statement came after the first time she was sued for not recognizing the online registration. And the ACLU is taking issue with her decision again this fall. Jamie Lynn Crofts is the ACLU of West Virginia's legal director. Interestingly, if you use the online system, you actually need to provide even more personal information than you do if you register using the mail-in card. 
Um, if you fill out a paper application, you only need either a driver's license or state ID number or the last four digits of your social security number. And if you use the online system, you need both. The ACLU worries that fewer people are registering to vote in Cabell County because registering in person is not as convenient as registering online. The lawsuit alleges that Cole's refusal to accept online registrations violates the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has both an, an equal protection requirement and a due process requirement. And when it comes to voting cases, those two things really merge together. Voting is such a fundamental right that you can't have it be different based on where in a state a person lives. The ACLU filed a similar lawsuit against Cole and the county clerk of Kanawha County this past spring, only to have the lawsuit rejected by the state Supreme Court without reason. This time, they hope that the outcome of the suit will be that voters who only registered online will still be allowed to cast a ballot on Election Day. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Ann Lee. As a note this week, West Virginia Public Broadcasting will be presenting a special episode of Viewpoint both on radio and on television in the coming days. The candidates for governor have all been invited to participate in an hour-long forum, and the Libertarian, Mountain, and Constitution parties have agreed to participate. Again, that hour-long West Virginia gubernatorial forum will only be available on public radio and television, so check your local listings or visit our website, wvpublic.org, for more information. This has been Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Special thanks this week to Reed Frazier and the Allegheny Front. Next week, we continue our survey of the statewide races, and we look at how dark money is influencing West Virginia politics. Viewpoint is available on wvpublic.org, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Follow the show at ViewpointWV on Twitter. I'm Ashton Mara. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs>